Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Exchange podcast. I'm Rai Wake, Chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. This podcast series of short, digestible episodes is intended for healthcare providers and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I will be interviewing experts about timely and timeless topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical care, sleep, infectious disease, and related disciplines. We will share information that will help you take better care of your patients today, as well as the patients of tomorrow. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody. This is Shamita Khatri. I'm the guest host of this podcast for both Respiratory Exchange and Respiratory Inspirations. It is my immense pleasure and honor to welcome a very good friend of mine, somebody I don't see as much as I'd like to see because, well, you're changing the world, Dr. Valapur. I'd like to introduce you formally, and then what I want to really do in this podcast is to have people get to know you, like the person behind the curtain who helps things happen in the transplant community and how you got there. So if that's all right with you, I'm going to start with introducing you, and then we'll get started. How's that sound? That sounds perfect. Perfection. I'm excited to be here with you oh. as well, Dr. Katri. Thank you, Miriam. And you know what? Call me Shamita, I'll call you Mary, Sounds if that's perfect. okay with that you. That seems more natural to Doesn't me, Doesn't it? Yeah. So, Dr. Mariam Valapur, she's the Director of Lung Transplant Outcomes Research here at the Cleveland Clinic. She has practiced as a lung transplant physician for 20 years and truly is a prolific researcher in the field with grant funding not only from NIH and the Department of Health and Human Services, but also foundations such as the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. So in addition to uh, completing a fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine, she also completed a fellowship in bioethics and health policy at Johns Hopkins and has a master's in public policy from the University of Minnesota, all of which is helping her redefine the field of transplant medicine. And I remember when we first met, I think, was it in the coffee in the kitchen? I think we finally sort of first met and I, I said, what? So. I said, I like public policy. And you're like, I do too. And I'm like, well, you're way ahead of the game here <laughs> as usual. So welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm mm-hmm. delighted to be here. Thank you. You know, we will get to some of the scientific and medical side of things in a minute. But you know what? I know that many people who listen to this podcast are also young trainees, medical students often, pulmonary fellows. And they're also wondering, you know, how can they make a difference in this world? I do see that in this next generation. So that's I'm going to focus a little bit about you. Is that all right? Absolutely. Okay. So I'm just curious, what motivated you as a young person, either in childhood, to do what you're doing and to pursue medicine? So I would say I think of life as these big events that change the course of our lives and uh, then smaller events that confirm we're on the right path or result in course correction. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I would say the defining event of uh, my childhood was being part, um, you know, being a refugee, a religious refugee from Iran, which is how I ended up in the United States. I was uh, 10 years old, and this is 1979, and um, that's how I ended up in this country. Mm -hmm. And undergoing kind of persecution of religious minorities really, I think, made an impression at that time in that 
I made two observations that I think have held true even 40 years later. And that is that misinformation and a misinformed population is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And which is what really made me fall in love with science and uh, education, because I was convinced if people knew better, they would do better. And there was a rationality to the discourse in science that I just found comforting. Mm -hmm. And the other observation was that policies and societal rules really are very impactful. In fact, they they can change your life overnight. And, And that's probably how I ended up in this intersection of science and policy in my career. And I still think that holds true. Wow, that's truly fascinating. As I'm listening to you, I'm getting chills because, you know, these are inflection moments in Mm -hmm. people's career and they're imprinted. So what you did is saw and felt what you saw and felt and turned it around to the opportunity. And so we are so sad that you had to leave your home country and and face that. But then on the other hand, we're so grateful that you're here contributing to us. (laughs) I consider the U.S. my home country. Yes, right, right. Okay, (laughs) Um, fair enough. Right now, you know, this is where I've grown up. And yeah, I consider both countries as instrumental in who I've become. Mm -hmm. But I think this is how being a physician scientist makes sense to me because I get to think about how do I make a system better? So patients in need at their most vulnerable period in their time, in their lifetimes, can access care. Mm-hmm. in a fair system. You know, it's interesting that you are so into that system idea. So, you know, just personally, I get very attached to people individually mm-hmm. and also, you know, on a broad scale. But um, I think I focus on the person and you focus on the system and it's like together we can make a difference, you know? Let's hope so. Let's hope, Let's so. hope so. Hope so. And so, you know, also when you were in training, was there any sort of patient and or mentor that motivated you or somebody you sort of imprinted on? You know, it's interesting. When I started at this intersection of uh, medicine and policy, particularly transplant medicine, you know, lung transplant really started in the 1990s. So it's, you know, it was pretty early in, in, in its genesis. And when I started, there were no mentor figures who were on this path. I was, you know, when I, t- I remember talking to someone about what I wanted to do, and he was just flabbergasted about the idea of mixing these two things mm-hmm. in, this, in the arena of transplant. But I would say that doesn't mean, so I didn't have a, a mentor whose path I could follow. Right. That does not mean I didn't have great teachers. Oh, great. What I did was use what I learned from each person to forge a path forward. I would say the people who probably made the biggest difference in my career are the patients who reaffirmed what I was doing. You know, these kind of careers take a long time and there's a lot of trial and error. When you talk about your career, usually if you're in a podcast, that means you've had some success. (laughs) But you know, there's many years of attempts at things that don't work out. And it's those years where I would see patients and kind of, you know, realize what I was doing probably made sense. And I would hope to be successful in being able to help them. Yeah. You know, that's very motivating, obviously, for you. So I see how you see the granular and the system. You know, I also know, and I've talked about this in other podcasts where others are interested in climate change and other things, that it, 
it kind of seems more recent that the physician is getting involved in policy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll, I'd love to, you know, I, I'm thinking about how your presentation you gave to us at our in, in our institute about, you know, you gave us a sort of arc of politics and science and policy. And it was so fascinating because you are making an impact on that. So what do you think about the physician public health policy person and what would you tell them like is it important or isn't it you know it's it's interesting in that you think of these people as different different personalities different backgrounds and different interests right and i think it might be true that politics may be not um, necessarily appealing to the average physician, just because there's more to politics than policy, right? Policy is a study of how systems can help or how system impacts society at large. So, you know, I had a little bout of having an interaction with politics when I was in medical school, and I had a summer internship on DC, and I realized that politics and that level of advocacy was not for me, because it wasn't always grounded in rationality and uh, data, mm-hmm. right? So there's more to, more to it than that. But where policy is science, at its core, you're just looking at how systems can impact your patient population or society at large. So for me, that is a really natural intersection. It, it is, uh, you, you know, I came up, a gener- came up in a generation when the NIH really emphasized a building the physician-scientist mm-hmm. cohort. And I think this is a natural output of that efforts by the NIH, where, yes. you know, a physician, I see the impact of what I do daily, weekly, monthly with my patients. So not only does it motivate me, it grounds my work into something that's that's useful and applicable to the population. You can have an adult conversation about it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, nowadays, I think uh, people may be um, a little bit swayed from one side or the other and right. frustrated with the politics. Right. But when you are a scientist, which is, I think a real genuine grounded honor, honestly, to know how to not just do good science, but to read the science and understand it properly, right? right? And that that can be a unifier regardless, you know, and we all bleed when we're cut, right? right? And change your mind when you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Change (laughs) your mind when When you're you're wrong. wrong. So it seems like the hope for the future for policy and health care is to use the science to make the case. Absolutely. And I do think the physician scientist is uniquely situated to understand, understand both sides. Mm -hmm. Well, we have to continue that for sure. So thank you very much for that. Now, I, I, this conversation is so much deeper and meaningful than that at the coffee station. Like, oh my (laughs) gosh, she's, she's amazing. Um, So I thought I'd switch gears now uh, for a little bit and and talk about the background of lung transplants, because I know we'll get into your policy, but just in general, what are the reasons people are considered for lung transplant? For the lay audience and maybe early medical people, like when do you think about lung transplant? So lung transplant, I would say, is a surgical treatment for our patient population with end-stage lung disease who has exhausted all other medical and surgical interventions. 
And I say that not because I don't believe in the, this treatment, but mostly because, you know, the, the survival after transplant is still not where I want it to be. So I think it, the way we approach it is that we maximize what we can do medically mm -hmm. for our patient population, and when it's time, then we intervene with a transplant. The populations that are mostly in the lung transplant uh, population are patients with pulmonary fibrosis, COPD, cystic fibrosis, and then pulmonary hypertension. These are the broad categories that make up the vast majority of lung transplant candidates and recipients, but that is the general diagnoses that are in, in our patient population. Mm -hmm. And if for a family member who you know wants to exhaust all options, mm -hmm. including medical, when is it the time to even consider looking into a transplant, whether you're eligible or not? What's too early, what's too late? What I would like to do is take this burden off of families okay. and patients, because this is really an intricate, intricate decision and understanding the details of it are scientifically and medically is really quite difficult. There are websites that people can go to, but what I would say is when somebody has severe lung disease, what they should do is make sure that they see a pulmonologist. Now, the tr on the transplant side, we make sure we inform the, the pulmonary physicians uh -huh. about what the indications are about transplant and how to think about referring patients to us. In fact, the International Society of Heart-Lung Transplant puts out recommendations for selection of candidates for and when to refer this, um, I think it was last year where we published the latest version of that and, and it's updated. And I was fortunate enough to be part of that international group. And what I think what we've came down to is that our expertise is expanding. We're mm -hmm. getting better at taking care of patients. So rather than limit patients, before referral, just refer to refer. transplant physicians. Our criteria changes regularly. We're getting better at managing patients. So when you think you're about to exhaust all other options, refer your patients to transplant. Yeah, and it seems like if you have other options, like as a tertiary or quaternary center, right. you may the options that you exhaust may be different exactly. than others. And I was just thinking about how COPD has changed so much now right. with, you know, it used to be lung volume reduction. Then we realized pulmonary rehab is just as good if you right. do a good job. And then now there's valves and, and all sorts of other things, which really what we're looking at is quality of life. And it's funny, it's like your lungs are always the best lungs, right? Your lungs are the best lungs. Mm -hmm. um, while they keep working. While they're working, good point. I am a transplant doctor yes, after yes. all. Yes, yes, I wasn't going to sway you away from that for sure, no way. But it's almost like uh, when you're thinking of it just like a PE, if you thought of a PE at all, you should probably get a VQ scan, same thing. If you're thinking, I wonder if this person is eligible for transplant as a physician, right? Mm -hmm. Either as a primary care, if you don't have enough pulmonologists in the area, or if you, ha if right. you are a pulmonologist and you don't have the, the resources, refer early. Refer early, mm -hmm. you know, I would say, that I'd rather see someone too early than yeah, too late. Exactly. So what do those referrals often look like? You know, is it in a place like this, for instance, where we get a lot of referrals, 
Is it somewhat systematized? Is there a process? So I would say that, you know, we're at the Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the largest lung transplant programs in the world. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you know, I feel quite fortunate to work with some of the foremost experts in the field. And as a result, we get cases that are a little bit more complex and potentially have been seen elsewhere and they you know, could not do the transplant for that particular person and they get referred to us. So I would say that should be another point to our audience that just because you were turned down in one center doesn't mean that another center doesn't cannot handle your case. But usually transplant programs know that and when they can't do a case, they refer out to a different center. So the process is that a pulmonologist or um, another transplant center will contact us and it's the records come to us and then they get just scheduled with all the transplant physicians. We're a group practice mm -hmm. and we do have our own patients, but we are also a group practice and we have a common theme to the way we handle patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's really uh, reassuring that as a national sort of super specialty, that you all sort of know each other in a way, uh, maybe not always personally, but you know what each institution's capable of and you discuss these at meetings. So it's like once you hit one, you basically have access to all because they're going to think like that. You know, there's only 70 lung transplant programs in the country. And just given how involved I am on the national scene, mm -hmm. you know, I do know Mm -hmm. I do know this, the country. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> so how much sharing is there among them? So this, again, for the more the medical group, as far as what the areas of expertise are, like how is it? Is it in a database or is it word of mouth or also the quality outcomes? You know, everybody likes mm -hmm. to, you know, Cleveland Clinic's very proud of reporting quality. Uh, you know, the asthma center, same thing. You know, how well are we taking care of our patients? So how is that measured, so to speak? Mm -hmm. And I know this is still a young, special, right. super specialty. So how would you like to see it measured? Well, we're not young enough when we're not graded. <laughs> so oh. I'll say that. Okay. So the scientific registry of transplant recipients, which is the scientific arm of the U.S. transplant system, and that is the organization where, with which I'm associated, right? Mm -hmm. So I kind of oversee the analysis of U.S. transplant data. That organization, one of its major tasks is evaluation of transplant outcomes. That's for all organs. Okay. That's for all organs for every institution. And those report cards, you would call it, mm -hmm. are public. They are put out quarterly by the SRTR, maybe with a little bit more frequency to the individual transplant centers where they have to evaluate, you know, they look at their outcomes. But transplant programs are evaluated based on what happens to their patients on the waiting list. Mm -hmm. And that's compared, and the way they're evaluated is that is they are compared to what other centers' outcomes are. On the wait list. On the waiting mm -hmm. list. Then their transplant outcomes are also evaluated and then survival as well. Mm -hmm. So at every at every instance, data data is gathered. This is transplant is one of the most regulated systems in in healthcare, and at every step, not only is it evaluated, but it's reported out mm -hmm. to the government, to the individual transplant centers, and it's available to transplant population. Mm -hmm. In fact, when we see patients in clinic, we are mandated to show what our outcomes are compared to other transplant centers. Mm -hmm. Well, 
it's important. You know, no, who likes to be graded? But actually, that's what keeps us honest, right? You, we we hope to meet. You hope to meet those grades. I mean, I call it grading, um, kind of tongue in cheek, because know you know you we're mean. evaluated. But mm-hmm. it was this was really it was not meant to be used that way when initially started. I don't know how many decades ago. It was really used because, you know, when this was a new field, all transplant was new field. And centers were wondering how they're doing. And you didn't even know if you were doing a good job or a bad job. How long should my patient live? How fast should I be at removing patients off the list? And so this method was developed so that you're compared to each other. So that that's really the easiest way. So you way. lift each other's right. up in so a way. Right, so you lift each other up. And in scenarios where you're not doing well, you'll try to, you know, we offer ways that they can evaluate their own programs. Got it. Okay. You know, I'll get back to lung transplant in more detail and policy and all that in a second. But, you know, many people, probably almost everybody knows somebody who's had a kidney transplant, Mm -hmm. let's say. And then, oh, I've seen a heart transplant among friends and, you know, close friends and you know, they do well for so long. So I, I was just wondering, so kidneys were first, right? In the 60s, right. I believe. And then the, the 50s, oh, 50s mm-hmm. even. Okay. And then heart was next, I believe, right? As far as what solid organ goes. So can you like for the lay person who kind of gets, okay, what a heart transplant, you, know, you see them in the movies. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody has a heart and then they start remembering things, you know, but So how is kidney and heart, you know, where are they compared to where we are? And how is lung transplant different than that? Oh, now you're going to have to make me admit that we're not the best (laughs) in survival. It's hard. It's It's hard. It's, uh, I would say, it's very hard. Mm -hmm. Um, Kidney has the best survival Mm -hmm. outcomes. It depends on if your organ comes from a deceased donor or a living donor, but their survival is in the decades, somewhere, you know, an average of, I would say, 12 to 20 years. It's it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, the numbers are just much bigger, and they started in the 1950s, so they have more experience. But kidney transplants are quite successful. The problem with them is that they have such a huge wait list. Yes. Other organs are in the middle, liver, mm-hmm. heart, they have decent survival, and then we end up with lung, mm-hmm. uh, lung mm-hmm. transplants. Our lung transplant survival, we're getting better and better with short-term survival. Our long-term survival has plateaued some, mm-hmm. and we average about between six to seven years, yeah. which, is, which is not where I wanna be, right. but it's at least something mm-hmm. when you think about the end of life. And about 20% of patients live longer than 10 years. That's wonderful. So I always make sure I say that to someone who sees me, mm-hmm. who's considering transplant, that long survival is, is possible. I've had a, you know, I had a patient who was alive for 25 years after tra- lung transplant. So it's possible, mm-hmm. but I would say as a, as a population, mm-hmm. uh, they have a lower survival compared mm-hmm. to the other big organs. So I'm sure that just like in asthma, we want to be able to predict, you know, what's the course of your asthma for the rest of your yeah. life based on the history. Is there, you know, kind of shifting a little bit to more to now, you know, what should they expect? How, you know, what are you trying to do to understand how to predict so that this can improve? Right. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about how my interest is in policy, but again, policy has its own science and a big component of making systems that are responsive to patients is understanding the trajectory of patients. And that's where the quantitative science part of my life comes in. Uh-huh. What does that mean? 
what is quantitative is measuring uh -huh. and then predicting okay. what's going to happen to patients. Better than the weather, I'm hoping? I am. I really hope so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I really pray that that's the case with us. So that is where that part of my science comes in, mm -hmm. where we, my team and I, work hard to understand and build better models, kind of predictive models, these mathematical models of predicting who's going to, what the survival if, is for someone on the list, what transplant circumstances change that survival, and then survival after transplant. In fact, the allocation systems and distribution, organ distribution systems are really based on these models that have been produced. Right. So how often do they look at these models and revise them? So we look at them all the time, I, <laughs> I would uh -huh. say. You know, there's a science that happens every day in this area. The big shifts in the country are slower to come, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have to change these models will go in, we get implemented as policy, and then everyone's ranking in the country changes in Oof. access to transplant. Yeah. So the last big one was in 2005 uh -huh. when the lung allocation score system was implemented. Over the years, we've made changes to the system, small changes, you know, so every five years or so, you would say there's enough of a push in our in the change in our patient populations or in our treatments that it's necessary to change the models. The next big change to mm -hmm. the system is coming on March 2nd. Okay. Um, and we're moving to the composite allocation oh. score system. Okay. How is that different? The way that's different, you know, as um, the science of organ distribution evolves as the clinical aspects of it evolve too, mm -hmm. right? So when we started in transplant, organs could only travel so far, right. and which is they could only go so long without getting bl enough blood perfusion. Uh -huh. And over time, you know, our science has gotten better there. Our technology has gotten better and we're able to move organs faster. And so the composite allocation score really has incorporated that concept of basically minimizing the impact of geography and organ distribution. So an organ doesn't have to be as close to a recipient as in the past. And so the boundaries of geography can contract or expand based on other criteria. For example, if you are really very sick on the list, the boundaries of geography are wider for you. You so have access to a wider range of organs than somebody who's not as sick as you are. So if it's more urgent for you, Absolutely. you actually have a chance to look be beyond, beyond a certain mile radius. Right. Mm. Well, that just makes sense. I mean, we have airplanes. I mean... Right? You do. The, you know, there's then becomes a system component ah, of it. True. So every time... Don't it, lose that luggage, well, right? Well, don't, not, not only don't lose the luggage. For lung, we actually go out and get the organs ourselves. Lovely. But remember, you need to think about, you know, every time a team goes out to get an organ, they might potentially not be able to do another transplant for mm. smaller centers. So you have to move organs in a way where people are traveling for clinically meaningful differences. So you don't want right. to make a whole team fly from, let's say, Ohio to California if they could have waited another day for their patient and the patient in California could have gotten that long. That way, so you have to think about system efficiency yes. as well as a patient population. Wow, so this is 
part of what you love, it seems. It's part of what I love. Yeah, I Making love that you love that. Work. Someone has to love this, okay? <laughs> Go work for a, an airline next, okay? Is oh, all goodness. I <laughs> no, this is fascinating. And it's like, it's so wonderful. I think the timeliness of this conversation mm-hmm. is so perfect because like you've done this, you've nudged the needle. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. Well, with a lot of help, let's just well, put yes, it that. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, but you're is, a nudger, we know that. I'm a nudger, you, <laughs> but there's a lot of help. <laughs> no, I, you know, and you've never downplayed your team. You've always lifted them up and given them credit. So that's just something that I know about you. But, you know, you being the face of this and, and like the spear is, is very, very important. Is there anything else you wanted to tell me about lung transplant or something to know, like something like what's the, what's the, what's the one thing that's still you know, in your craw about it, apart from the allocation? Is it something like the rejection, the chronic, like, does that... Oh, there's lots of things that bother me about, (laughs) you know, there's still a big list of things I kind of think about. For patients who access organs, Mm -hmm. I would say the things that we really need to conquer is increasing our donor pool. So, that is still, you know, that is the crux of the problem. You know, I only think about how do I distribute organs because there's just not enough. And right. I work to make sure that we give people access in a timely way. If, I, if there were enough organs, I wouldn't need to do what I do, right? So that's one. I think that don- increasing the donor supply is really essential. The second for, again, this is once people get into the system and get transplanted, chronic rejection is a major problem in our field. And as you may know that my team also serves as a coordinating center for 15 center consortium trying to better understand chronic rejection. So that's one aspect. The other is really the question, which is a big part of transplant, is who doesn't get access to transplant that should. Mm. So the disparities in access to transplant is an area that I feel quite passionate about because it speaks to kind of who we are as a society, right? So are we cutting people out that deserve a chance? And that is an area of inquiry of my teams. And um, I can I tell you that the the National Academy of Sciences recently had a work group and a product that was put out, put out that's really uh, focusing on that area of thinking about disparities and access to transplant in this country. Gosh, I mean, it's still an issue for asthma, which is mm-hmm. relatively, quote unquote, easier, right. <laughs> but it's not. So yes, I'm glad that that is actually, you have to put you have to put a marker in the sand about this for right. people to know that it's important. It's important. And to pursue it. And then other people like you will join the fight to make that happen. Right. Yeah. You know, what also fascinates me, I think you talked about that National Academies of Sciences, but NIH, you know, mm-hmm. NHLBI is 50. <laughs> and so, you know, lung regeneration is the next frontier as right. well. So I, I hope to be alive and be, you know, a clinician scientist still while that becomes uh, possible. Don't you? Me too. Wouldn't that be great? Hopefully sooner than later. Me too. But that's exciting that they've made that a priority as well. So, you know, I think people probably have figured out what you're like. And, uh, (laughs) of course, I'm, I'm really excited about what you do. But, you know, you talk about your team, and I know many of your team, and many of them... A few are, you know, peers, but many are mentees. And you have lifted them up amazingly. And they've been on podcasts with you. And they're just thriving. So 
you know, I just wanted to say with this robust team of multi-institutional, multidisciplinary partners, you've seen, overseen a large team, multi-institutional, as I said, you know, let's start with how might others describe your leadership <laughs> style? And then if it's parallel or counterpoint, how, how would you describe your leadership style? Shall I start with what I think I do? And then well, of course you'd go with what you think first. Yeah, let's, you just rearrange that. Go ahead. You know, I think as a leader, my, and I use that term, I don't even I know what that really means, but I think people think of me as that when I walk into a room, mm -hmm. they kind of look at me, look to me to yeah. think about what to do next. Mm -hmm. And I think of my role as being the person who communicates what our shared vision should be. I think that's essential for what I want to do and how to move a field forward. I, I think about, you know, every day that I wake up, I think about how do we make things better and how, will, how do we make the future become a better place than today. And that really requires creating that shared vision. The next thing I do is I find the best people I can. Mm, um, I really try to find people who are smarter than I am. Mm. And the best people with the best skill set and help develop areas where they need to develop so then they can become my partners in this. You know, I, I think um, it's interesting how when I first start working with someone, there's a lot of communication about what we should be doing, how, you know, how can we advance this work, methods, all of that. But over, you know, it takes about a year or so. And after that, I don't have to talk about why we're here right. and what we're doing. It's baked in. It's baked in. And then I have a partner. Mm -hmm. Then I have a partner. And as much as, you know, people talk about me mentoring, I think uh, I didn't even know this would happen, is how much you learn from the your the people you mentor mm -hmm. or your mentees. They open your eyes in a they way. They open your mm -hmm. eyes and you understand kind of where your issues are and you learn. And I've now, there's a whole team that I work with who are way smarter than I am, who know there are things that, you know, they all know how to talk to me and make me understand things. But what I do is po uh, provide a cohesive vision. Yes. That's, that you're the that's what I do. Overseer of all of this talent. Right. Yeah. So how they would see me, you're going to have to ask them. <laughs> well, maybe when they first start, it's different than two years later. I, I would say that you could say that I'm uncompromising mm -hmm. in our commitment mm -hmm. to the work, you know, and I do care about them individually. I frankly care about myself individually as well. But yeah. as for in the bigger picture, the work is more important. Yeah. And while everyone is seen as an individual, when we come to work, it's for the work. Absolutely. And you know, there are there is a tendency for very ambitious people to want to row ahead and row in their own direction. That doesn't work in a work like this. It has no. to be everybody bringing their skills and rowing together. This is very hard work and is Naturally. multidisciplinary, is interdisciplinary, and is moving policy forward and getting everyone on the same page in the country. And to do that, we all have to be on the same page. Yeah. And appealing to that, I found works. Well, I've always appreciated the way you articulate your vision and your clarity. And I can see why you would be that person people would look at to see, okay, where's, what's the big picture again? Where are we going? How do we course correct? And we try not to get confused about that. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you get distracted. Dis you can get distracted. Mm -hmm. And I am, I 
I, I you know as I've gotten older I get less and less distracted mm -hmm. now yeah. I'm pretty clear you yeah. know I you know I we have finite careers and finite lives, mm -hmm. and I'm uh, very clear about that. Yeah, I think life experiences and also our personalities become clearer as yeah. we become wiser. It's the best part of aging. I, I totally <laughs> agree. I totally agree. And so, you know, back to the why, there's going to be a couple questions I have. One is, is there a patient or a situation particularly that you remember that keeps you inspired? I know you care about all of them in total, but... One that you still remember, some interaction that inspires you and motivates you to continue this life's work. I would say, yes, it's true that all patients ring with you in a certain way mm -hmm. and motivate you and help you course correct. I do have to say, I think, when, I, I don't even remember how old I was. I was a young faculty member. I was in my 30s mm -hmm. at the time. And I would say my career had not fully taken off. It was a hard time. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, applying for grants, not getting them. Oh, yeah. Just the usual difficult young life issues. <laughs> I had a patient, a very young patient in her 20s, who had cystic fibrosis, who, who died. Oof, yeah. And I think, um, and she, you know, was not, and she wasn't ready. And uh, she couldn't access transplant because of the kinds of infections she had. And I think she really has stayed with me. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I've seen a lot of patients over the years. You know, it's a long career now. But the fact that we didn't have adequate treatment for her and we couldn't list her for a transplant just has stayed with me. And I have to say that is somebody I probably think about at least every few days. Wow. Yeah. Who knew, right? Who, I mean, who knew she, she inspired you in a way that others are being helped. And yes, I mean, think of, I'm not going to tell you how to think, but that's, you know, that's motivation. It's motivation. And, you know, and I would say that, of course, you, you enjoy the successes, mm -hmm. right? But, but I don't know how people are normally wired, but I think physicians remember when they couldn't help. That's oh, kind yeah. of the, that is our uh, professional Achilles heel, Achilles heel <laughs> but that we just remember yeah. people we couldn't help. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that person has always stayed with yeah, me. Yeah, I know. Uh, right there with you. Sorry oh. to be depressing. No, no, you're not. You're not depressing. I think what we do need to do is take what can be very sad and depressing and flip it. Yep. You know, I know I had a very severe asthma patient who, you know, I think her family said lived longer than she would have if she hadn't been taken care of by our team. And I'm going to have to live with that, too. You know, people yeah. shouldn't die of asthma, but she did. So, you know, I think of her often, too. Yep. I have a little cross that she made, you know, with a reed in, in, on my bookshelf, yep. and I look at it every day. So lastly, words of wisdom, like what is the words, like if there's a phrase that you have, I mean, I'll, I'll share mine with you just so that, you know, like mine's like, you know, find the largest platform where you can make a difference and pay it forward. I've done that for women leaders, you mm -hmm. know that. But you have. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite proud of that. Thank you. You should be. Yeah. We are, we're proud of it too. Thank you. We are, uh, we are beneficiaries of your efforts. Mm -hmm. All right, right back at you, number one. And it's not about me, it's about you right now. So what is, your, what is your words of wisdom or words to live by? I would say there is not, you know, I tend to meditate. So there is a lot that kind of informs my behavior and my conduct, I would say. 
But in the Baha'i faith, there is this concept that work done in the spirit of service is equal to worship. Mm. And I would say I don't formally worship <laughs> regularly. And this is my way of conducting myself and working to to improve things, to just leave things better than I found them. And in that way, I, I always kind of remember that in the back of my mind. You know, work can be challenging. There are days you're not at your best, and there are days that you're frustrated. Or So when I, with that in mind, I think it not only focuses my work, but my conduct when I'm doing that work. Mm-hmm. And that probably is a phrase that's in the back of my mind at all times. Mm-hmm. So your life, your life is your purpose. You, you live your purpose in, in how you conduct yourself and what you do. I try. Yes, <laughs> we all try. Many of us try. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this is, I think, you know, one, of the, one of the reasons I went into medicine is because I thought I was going to be surrounded by people that were like-minded. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, we all are here to help mm-hmm. in whatever way we can. Mm-hmm. That is the core uh, motivation, I think, of every physician. Mm-hmm. So I see that with my colleagues, and I try to measure up. Yes. Well, I just so thank you for the time you've given oh, my us. My pleasure. It's been wonderful to, you know, it's like we should have had this conversation a long time ago, but now we're going to have it in a way where so many people will benefit from the knowledge and your philosophy and your drive and your motivation. So uh, just wanted to say thank you. It's an honor and pleasure to call you a friend as well as a colleague. Yeah, I, I, I'm so grateful to be here, and I, I feel the same way. Okay. Thank you for having me. Be well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange Podcast. For more stories and information from the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow me on Twitter at tryedwakemd.com.